Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, a video editor, and a former shepherd. With me, as always, is my co-host, Harry Ottensasser. Hey, Daniel. I didn't know that about you, but uh, as always, my name is Harry Ottensasser. I have a degree in film studies, and I am a current Jewish film podcaster. And uh, this week, we're discussing the film Babel, directed by Alejandro Nurito. And joining us, our guest today grew up bouncing back and forth between the Bay Area and Brooklyn, hippies and Hasidim, and has been trying to synthesize these two worlds ever since. He serves as an associate rabbi at Ikar, a non-denominational spiritual community in Los Angeles, where he teaches weekly classes in Mishnah and Parsha, and hosts a podcast on the Torah called Best Book Ever. He received a BA in political science from Wesleyan University, a JSD from Berkeley Law, and rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva Chovavei Torah. He's a teacher of nearly all forms of classical Jewish literature, but his greatest passion is Torah commentary, and he just published a book on the subject, Parshanut, 54 Journeys into the World of Torah Commentary. Uh, by David Kasher, welcome to Jews on Film. Thanks, good to be here. It's so funny to hear your bio read. You know, it's like always such yeah. a weird, like, yes, I, and you, it also speaks in the third person, but obviously I wrote that, and it's like, <laughs> it's just so funny, like, there's something so formal about, and I went to these colleges, and I, but yes, that is me. Hi, nice to be here. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. Um, we're really excited to talk to you about this film, Babel. I hadn't seen it in a while, and you mentioned before that you had just seen it for the first time. Is that correct? Yeah, I had never seen it. It's one of the reasons I I picked it is just to give me an opportunity to like block time to to see it, because it is you know like a lot of his movies are big chunks of time, like. Uh, it was, it's like two and a half hours or so. The few of his that I've seen are just so he's good. I mean, he's like really, really good. So, um, so I was psyched about that, about, about just having a chance to see another one of those, um, long films that I need to make time for, but also, uh, yeah, I've always, it's I, like, I've always thought about it as, as a movie because of the title. I actually, this is one movie that I, this is the only movie in a way that I mentioned in my book. Because I like in the in the uh, I wrote this book on the on the weekly Torah readings and the second one is the Noah Noah Parshat Noah um, and like I start by talking about the the Tower of Babel and I I say and this famous legend which has captured the world's imagination and inspired everything from Renaissance paintings to Hollywood films and like this that was the film I was thinking about right. when I wrote that but I I'd never seen it so it was good to. Yeah, so it's good to to finally fill that gap in. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's so funny you say that. I mean, first of all, I would say half the movies that we've covered for the podcast, I'm very happy that they were recommended because they're movies I probably wouldn't have taken the time out for always to dive deep into. And this is, I don't think this is the longest movie we've watched. We've watched some really long ones and grateful that you recommended it because it was nice to get to watch it. It's funny the way you were talking about this movie and its obvious inspiration in the story of Babel. I had never seen it before this. I was familiar with Alejandro Nerito, more so some of his later films that I've I've seen. But this one I I had heard of. I know my I remember my parents talking about it. They had seen it years earlier. And what's so funny is that when I heard the name Babel, I mean that that's obviously talking to that very specific episode in the Torah. I thought this was like a recreation of that. I thought this movie was a biblical epic. Interesting. Kind of, okay. And I learned that more recently than like when I sat down to watch this a couple sure, of days sure. ago. I, I learned that, you know, long afterwards, but I was like excited. I'm like, that's a cool facet of the Torah that you don't normally see. You get a lot of movies about, you know, the Exodus, about creation, but that's going to be really interesting. And we're going to talk about it for sure, just about how, how much that iconic story thematically ties into, you know, the way that this movie played is out, the ways the ways that it's really structured. But uh, but it was just really interesting to discover kind of how he was pulling from that to create this movie. 
Yeah. When when you said I could pick a movie, at first I thought about, I mean, my only area of, of like knowledge or expertise really is in, and I wouldn't call it expertise, but but uh but but I the thing that I know about is is Torah. And so I thought, oh, there's some of those movies that are kind of recreations of Torah stories, but a lot of them it's like weird and like yeah. like awkward and they don't know what they're talking about. Or it's fun and corny like the Ten Commandments that I think I suggested, but maybe that's too on the nose. And I think you've done it before anyway. But I like and the then idea that would have been this... really, really long. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's too. a long one. But I like the idea that this one just it just alludes. You're right. It's not about the the story in the in the in the Torah. It just alludes to it. But it's it's amazing the way you can just say Babel, and it's enough to evoke a whole series of themes. He just calls it that and you know now some of what he's thinking about, at least on a basic level, you know he's thinking about communication. Like right. That seems like on some basic level, that, that's what Babel has come to communication and the lack of communication. It's, it's just cool the way, you know, the, the story in the, in the Torah is, I always think about this, it's just nine verses. You know, it's just, just nine verses. And it's just captured the human imagination. So that's like amazing that this is so embedded in our consciousness that we could just say Babel. And, you know, it's just a, a, like a snippet in the right. Torah. So I wanted to take the opportunity to point out that you are, I believe, our first rabbi on the podcast. Is that correct, Harry? I, I think so, yeah. Okay, so I would be remiss if I didn't ask for you to kind of like give us over the, those eight passages roughly like, you know, I usually ask Harry to do the IMDb summary of the film, but I was just wondering if you could kind of like summarize to us what the story is for those who are not familiar, the story of, of Babel in, you know, the Old Testament. You could go Cliff Notes style, it doesn't have to be word for word, but you know, just yeah, like, great. yeah. Yeah, happy to. I mean, one of the interesting things about it, just to give a little context, is that it as it has sort of tucked in um, at the end of the second reading in the Torah, the, the reading which is mostly the Noah and the flood story. So it's after the flood, and that seems significant, you know, it, it that just contextually, and maybe even it matters, maybe they're trying to build something high because of that, like there are lots of theories, but it comes right after the flood, and then it comes right before the kind of grand entrance of Abraham, which is like when the Torah's a particular store family story takes off so it's just like kind of there as a like an extra lesson like you have adam and eve in the garden of eden and then you have like cain and abel and then you have noah and these these are these seem to be defining human stories and then you have the tower, tower of babel sort of tucked in there and it's telling us something but it's not entirely clear what so um the opening of the story it announces that the whole world spoke one language um and it's in the language, there's a little funny. It's a Safa Had Udvari Machadim. There's like a repetition. So they spoke one language and the and in unified words. So it was like almost like they were unified in their vision. And they're look, they're like traveling after the flood and they're looking for the place. They come upon a valley and they say, let's build something here. Let's build, and they say, let's actually let's build um a city, not just a tower, but a city. And that that seems significant. Sour the city and a tower. Um, with its with its roshova um, uh, shamayim, with its with its tip in the in the sky in the heavens, it's like something you know trying to reach towards the heavens, and that that seems significant because God pretty quickly gets disturbed by this. But the thing that they say, which is interesting, is we're going to build this tower of Lanushem, and we'll make a name for ourselves. 
So that's one thing. And then they say, lest we be scattered across the whole earth. So there's like, there's something in that, like maybe it's like self-aggrandizing is the problem. Maybe they're like, there's something about human power growth industry, but there's also a fear. Like we don't want to be scattered. We want to like stay together. And, um, and God is, comes down and doesn't like the plan and is maybe even freaked out by it. Like, oh, this is not good. What are these people up to? And um, if they all can communicate in the way they do, then they'll be unstoppable. There's a lot of like God being a little bit worried about at the end of the Garden of Eden. And here again, like maybe people are going to try to become like gods or something like that, um, which is a weird idea. And so famously, God um, says, it's time to scramble their language. If they if they can all speak the same language, then they're, then then who knows what they're going to do. Um, so uh, let's go navla et svatam. That's where we get the Babel language. It's like to to mix up their language, and God does that, and then um, they and and then also scatters them across the earth, which is what part of what um, what they were worried about to begin with. That ends up happening. And um, and so it's sort of like a story about, well, how did there get to be people all over the world that's, who speak all these different languages when we have this, maybe that's the what it's doing there in the Torah. Like, well, didn't everything start with this one family? So why is there, why are there so many different kinds of people? Maybe it ex- explains that, but it also seems to have this kind of like unclear what it is, but some kind of moral message uh, about you know, how we can't all be the same or speak the same right. language or something would be dangerous about that. Yeah. So that's I mean, Tower of Babel. Awesome. No, that's a great, that's a great retelling. I feel like that context, certainly, especially how you are, you are talking about it really informs like the film a lot. Like now I'm sort of, you know, there's obviously like the language stuff in the film, but like just hearing you retell the story kind of in spreading the people all over the place. We'll kind of get into it, but I really think that was that was helpful for anyone not familiar, but also for sure for myself. There's lots going on there and there are themes of industry and human power and all this, but at the yeah. heart of it all is the question of of language. That mm-hmm. seems to be and that's the way we remember the Tower of Babel story is we even have that word in English, right? To babble. Right. To say speak speak, you know, meaningless sounds. And that's because it's like it's about the 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 babble there is about confusion. It's not just about it's about the attempt to communicate and the inability to communicate, and that's what's happened to us. And certainly, Inuritu picks up. Oh right, yeah, right that's, up on that. Oh totally. It's it's going to be really interesting to map this onto the movie because I think the message of the actual story in in the Torah is, like you said, very ambiguous and you you know muddled. It kind of plays on both sides where it's like. Well, on one end, it's like they're they're very powerful that it, that you know when everyone comes together speaking the same language. So did God want to separate them because the language itself is very unclear in the text? Is God you know ang- nervous about the power that they could have against you know God's self, or is God more doing this for their sake? The way that I think you started positioning it as well, and I think that kind of ambiguous relationship with what I would put on the film these themes of language communication, globalization, intersection. I think that movie does carry a little bit. I I, I do think yeah. it has some clear moralizing perspectives, and I would say it has a, several characters I want to call out as being, you know, un, just bad, poor communicators to the point of hurting other people around them. Sure. But at the same time, like, 
I don't know. I, I'm interested to see where the movie might, you know, come out on different sides because I don't think the movie's thesis is everyone should be speaking the same language. And I'm not sure if it's only saying it's bad that everyone is so discommunicated. Like I think right. it's pointing towards perhaps different forms of communication that that aren't as harmful despite language barriers. That no, I agree. I agree with that. And you know, this is maybe getting ahead of ourselves, but I actually felt like one of the most striking things about the movie is that there's all kinds of communication problems and there are so many languages, but right. language isn't actually the problem. You know, right, right. like the, the real problems in communication are much deeper human problems mm -hmm. than translation that they're right. able to do, you know? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I think one of the things that I loved so much about the film was both seeing the person in their environment communicating so well with the people that spoke their language, you know, whether it's Chico talking sign language with her friends and like really talking up such a storm and you know, emoting and really getting messages across or wh whether it was Amelia talking to her family in Spanish. But then you see that character like come up against a different language and suddenly everything's babble. Everything's totally, I, I don't know what's going on. What are you saying to the police officer? What are you saying to the those boys? What are, You know, and she you knows she's going into the nightclub and it's totally silent. There's just, you see it where everyone's like totally in line and understands what's going on. And then we're suddenly flipped on our head with the language. So I think the way that language plays in this film is something I definitely want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I but I think I also agree with what I what I thought David was saying before, which is that it's not only brushing up against another language. You know, that's mm -hmm. not the only point of contention. Uh -huh. Okay. Because I and I was gonna definitely point these out when we got up to them, but there sure. were several instances where I found that some of the worst confusion, maybe not the worst in the film, but are between people speaking the same language. So I'm thinking mm -hmm. of, you know, Brad Pitt's character talking to the sure. people on the bus who really right. are on yeah. are on different pages from them. Yes. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, the, like the nanny character and, you know, when she's with her, I think it's her nephew. And like, they are clearly not on the same page oh, about sure. some of the right. police right. things. And, and again, we'll get into all this. I'm being intentionally vague because all this will be covered in the content, but... The worst communication in the film is between the people who, in in a sense, are the most intimate. Brad Pitt and his right. and Kate Blanchett, the, right, the, the, right. the husband wife, absolutely the worst communicators in the film. You know what I mean? So right, um, yeah. Harry, you know, we had Rabbi Kasher talk to us a little bit about the Babel story, but I need you to tell us what is this movie about per the IMDb summary. All right, here's what it tells us. Tragedy strikes a married couple on vacation in the Moroccan desert, touching off an interlocking story involving four different families. What it tells us is not much. No. It does set up the, the structure, which, you know, right. when we get into the synopsis, we're going to have to explain to everyone yeah, because yeah. this movie does a lot in terms of the way it edits its four stories together, which don't often overlap, although sometimes culminate in the way it plays with different timelines and different settings and in ways that I, I sometimes found less successful than other times. And we'll, we'll get into that. But um, but yeah, this, this is a, this was a fun movie and especially a fun one to write the synopsis for. Oh, God. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds great. Let's take a quick break. We will come right back with Rabbi David Kasher to talk about the film Babel. We will be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Rabbi David Kasher to talk about the film Babel, directed by Alejandro Iñárritu, who's done films like Birdman, Revenant, Beautiful and the recently released Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. I have not seen it. Would love to check it out. 
Um, but our film stars Brad Pitt as Richard, Kate Blanchett as Susan. So they're a married couple. Gal Garcia Bernal as Santiago, and his aunt is Adriana Barraza, who plays Amelia. Rinko Kikucho plays Chieko. Um, and uh, we have a couple of folks in Morocco. We have Mustafa Rachidi as Abdullah, the dad, Said Tarchani as Ahmed, the older brother, and Bubker Ait El Kaid as Yusuf, our younger brother. Harry, do you want to start us off? Just kind of tell folks what how the movie is played out, and, uh, and then we can get started on discussing the plot. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to run through the plot as per usual, except this time it's going to be, I guess, not per usual, because it's going to be a little bit different. This movie is a little bit of a puzzle box movie from an era when a lot of Hollywood movies were, were doing this, kind of in the in the wake of, Memento? I would say, the Pulp Fiction, oh, Memento, okay. sure. that era, exactly. So just to have that in mind. So that's what we're working with here. Yeah. What it does is it chronicles these four different stories that eventually all intersect in one way or another, but it kind of bounces back and forth. So for the sake of clarity for the synopsis, we've divided each of our synopsis sections that we do into four different bullet points, one corresponding to each location. And that that's kind of how the movie's presented. So this, we wanted to put you in the position of actually watching the movie, but I'll just announce where we are. The four areas that the movie explores or the four you know peoples are, we're going to talk about the Moroccan story, the Mexican story, the American story, and then the Japanese story. And if that makes sense, I'll jump in. And if the two of you have any questions, feel free to ask. If the audience does, you can't really get that to me, but I'll try to anticipate any concerns anyone might have. Email us with questions and comments to jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com. Subject line, <laughs> Harry, can you please explain Babel? Yeah, go ahead, Harry. Okay. So starting with the Moroccan story. So, And that's how the movie opens. Uh, Moroccan merchant Abdullah sells a rifle to a goat herd who intends to use it to kill jackals attacking his herd. He gives the rifle to his sons, and they're doubtful that it can reach three kilometers, as they were told, so they decide to fire it towards a moving bus in the distance. To their surprise, the bus stops and pulls over, apparently having been struck. To the Mexican story, so there's we meet a Mexican nanny, Amelia, who's looking after two American children. She takes a call from the children's father, who informs her that he was unable to get another nanny, and that Amelia will have to stay the night instead of going to her son's wedding which is in Mexico. She fails to find someone else to look after the kids, so she packs them up and takes them to Mexico along with her nephew, who's driving. Then we meet the American couple, who are Richard and Susan, played by Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett, and they are. we meet them as they're sitting at a Moroccan cafe and relitigating old arguments. On the tour bus, the two of them sit together, not speaking, when suddenly a bullet breaks through their window. Richard is horrified to find it hits Susan in the shoulder, and he calls for the bus to stop. Finally, we go to Japan, where we meet a deaf-mute Japanese teenager, Chiko, as she's ejected from a volleyball game. <clears throat> Afterwards, her father wants to take her out to lunch, but she decides she wants to go out and hang out with her friends instead. While out with her friends, some boys attempt to flirt with them, but soon realize that the girls are all deaf and leave embarrassed. A frustrated Chiko goes to the bathroom, takes her panties off, and flashes the guys when she returns to the table. And uh, we'll stop here, having set up the four different worlds. That's a lot of stuff to to kind of unpack. I thought... You know, the movie kind of opens in a, in, we're already starting. So everyone get your tickets for the stretch train because I'm stretching already. Like this is a subtextually Jewish film, perhaps. Um, so, you know, I got some very strong, like, um, you know, Genesis vibes, Bereshit sort of with the shepherd of it all and the two sons fighting is very Cain and Abel. Um, so I wanted to kind of point that out because, um, Yusuf and Ahmed have this sort of older and younger brother rivalry. You could also say like Yaakov and Esav, you know, like one's a hunting brother and one's not as, you know, good at the rifle stuff. So that sort of stuck out to me as like one thing. 
Um, but yeah, and all the other stories are great. Um, shout out to Kate Blanchett for using sanitizer in the year 20, you know, I think that's sort of a signifier pre-COVID of like someone who's really serious about germs. And that was, uh, the movie came out in 2006. So she was using it before it was cool. So. Yeah, I, I noticed that too, that the movie begins in an like an Arabic land, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, it's not, you know, it's it ends up being Morocco and not like, you know, the the the, the biblical land but it's it it, fe it has that feeling yeah and you you like a lot of those scenes i would say a lot of the movie takes place in in the desert and you just yeah. feel the way that like they what it's like to wander through the desert which is which is sort of the way the you the the tower of babel story starts it's like they're like they're like wandering and then they find a valley and that's like that's that's where they start, you know, they get started on on building. But it's like there's something about that landscape that is so evocative yes, for yes. me. Just seeing that is like, oh, right. Like that's my people were once like the, my story started in a desert wandering. Yeah, I, I got all the same reads that you are saying that you both are saying about this having a sort of very biblical, you know, very simple. I mean, obviously, they're like. We don't we don't get to see so much into their into their lives. I mean, into anyone's. But I think this movie, you know, in, in its telling its story of Babel, it shows four specific perspectives. I think to highlight just very different situations. You know, I'm contrasting this with I'm, I'm going all the way to the very end of the movie. But the kind of yeah. final shot of the movie where it ends is we're in that Japanese sequence and they're just kind of standing outdoors, you know, on a balcony. And we'll get to that why they are later. But the camera kind of pulls out and just visualizing where the movie ends, which is. I mean, honestly, you know, talk about Babel. You're surrounded by these tall skyscrapers that are like Ooh, piercing the sky versus nice. where it starts in this first scene and this kind of very bare landscape, this very mm -hmm. like biblical, like dirt roads. You know, there are cars, there's some technology there. But again, it's this very, like we're saying, biblical, you know, old school, so to speak, you know, lifestyle of being these goat herders. I think the movie is, is kind of, I don't know if it's, if it's on a trajectory towards this kind of like the Tower of Babel, of Babel was built, like we we did it, we've become too connected. And that's, you know, kind of the sins of everyone are, you know, the mistake of this little boy is impacting, you know, the like Amelia. And, and again, I, I keep jumping ahead, but like maybe that's where the movie's going with this. But at the very least, I think we can agree that this is really placing you in, in this kind of biblical framework of like, you know, from every level, this is, you know, communication exists in all worlds, even one that, you know, as Americans, the three of us, I think is not as recognizable to our day-to-day -day experience. Sure. Right. And if you're looking at it from the perspective of the Tower of Babel story, then like the movie kind of like the layering of the scenes works because you start in this de desert region, sort of biblical style landscape. And then all of a sudden you're like, in Mexico and in Japan, and it's like, oh, that is what the Tower of Babel says, which is that people then spread all over the earth and have these right, very right. different cultures. And you feel some of the very different, obviously, you feel the different languages, but you also feel different cultures. And I think one of the things you feel right away, which becomes important, I think, in the movie, is you feel that some of those cultures are embedded in wealth and some of them are embedded in poverty and that makes a huge difference i, I it might be helpful to establish at this point that the connection between amelia and you know brad pitt's character if that's okay that's not spoiling anything i mean 
you know. So essentially, Amelia is taking care of Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett's kids. So it's important to establish that sort of connection. I'll save the sort of bigger connecting tissue, uh, the connecting item between uh, all of these uh, stories for a little bit later. But I wanted to call that out, um, you know, just mm. so that it's not completely random. Exactly. And, and then the other thing is the bus, which, you know, if, if you weren't able to get from, you know, that, that first summary portion, you, you kind of get pretty clearly in the movie that that the Moroccan bus that, you know, Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett, that their characters, Richard and Susan are riding on is, is the one that was shot at, you know, you, you figure out very quickly, that's who shot them. And it's just what the movie then does, especially in their sequence, and we'll talk about this a lot, is they spend so much time trying to figure out, you know, who, where that came from. People talk about terrorism and, you know, have all these like big ideas. And it's just... You know, we, again, it's it's no one suspects just how connected and small, you know, the, these two worlds of these American terrorists and this Moroccan shepherding family, like no one, no one suspects how connected they've become. You know, there immediately goes, oh, if this was an American terrorist targeted, this must have been a government conspiracy. This must have been, you know, an, a terrorist, like something that was going on on a much bigger scale. But, you know, the movie kind of shows us it was it was almost incident. I mean, it was incidental, right? Sure. There, they obviously aim towards the bus, but they weren't intending to to shoot anyone in particular. And it's like an interesting choice to like let us, the viewer, know what's going on at all times. There's not any sort of suspense or mystery surrounding some of these decisions. I feel like there is an, another version of this movie where we don't know how things happen and like maybe the bullet going through the window comes first and then we find out kind of like afterwards. So, you know, sort of like these suspense mystery movies like A Knives Out or whatever, where like... Really, the That's end of the the end of the movie is where like it all kind of comes together. Here, we're kind of ahead of the the people in the film, like in a sense that we know, you know, as it's happening. So, anyway, we know how we're connected gonna say, it is. Yeah, exactly. Harry, you said something about like uh, the the world being so small in a way because suddenly you see everything interconnected, and I think that. I think that is present in that sense is present in the movie. And we we say that kind of thing all the time when we notice interconnectedness. Oh, what a small world it is. But I actually think it's a it's a it's a tension in the movie in in, in, in on the one hand. Sure, there's a deep interconnectedness. And that's the whole point of the movie is it does this interlocking interconnecting stories. But on the other hand, throughout every, like there's a deep sense of alienation and division and no matter how connected we are we're actually very far apart from one another we can't so it's like it's kind of both it's like we're all so deeply intertwined and at the same time we cannot even sometimes when we're standing right in front of each other we can't understand each other and then much of the time we're so far flung across the globe and in globe in such different situations that we can't even relate to one another Right. Yeah, I, I think, and I think what this movie is doing is talking about, I mean, this is released into, when did this movie come out? Have we said that up 2006? to 2006? 2006, yep. And I think when this movie comes out, and obviously we're living it in now, we are in this incredibly globalized world, you know, to get topical talking about, you know, the spread of COVID-19 that happened, you know, at this point, only a couple of years ago, like people talk about how because of plane travel, because of globalization, because of business, like we are more connected than we've ever been. And I think the exact tension of the movie is what you pointed out, David, that the as connected as we are, and it's incredible how connected we are, because, you know, it's not just industry is connected. It's not just people from wealthy countries are connected. I mean, even people from more impoverished backgrounds, like all of their actions are, you know, it's almost it's like the butterfly effect, right? right. It's that like, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings here. Who, who knows what happens there? 
And at the same time, I think it, that's coming into direct tension with what we pointed out at the beginning, which is just the inability to really communicate when it comes to, you know, especially interpersonally. I mean, I think in every instance, you know, between the brothers fighting or, you know, between the husband and wife fighting, like there's there's always this kind of tension within a certain world. And it's just, uh, I think the movie is just, is, is highlighting that. It's as connected as you as you think we've become, you know, as as much as like we feel like we're living in this one huge tower together, the language is still completely muddled. I'm, I'm just, Daniel, you're smiling. I'm tie, I'm trying to tie it back to no, uh, I our get, friend, I, of course. I, I'm here for it, man. I'm totally here for it. And 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 the things that we are connected through, we are all deeply connected. But it's like we're connected through like goods and transactions and like money stuff. and stuff and you know, it's like uh, you know. It's not like, oh, but there's a shared ethic all over the world and there's a shared um, recognition of sameness all over. It's like those are not the things we share. The things we share are like, well, we're all here and we all have to like deal with each other, you know? Definitely. And and like the and before I set you up, Daniel, just you you alluded to this earlier, Daniel, but we're not going to spoil it. But it's ironic hearing you say that, David, and then thinking about what is like, you're right, it's not a value. It's it's actually a specific object and what that object actually becomes and what we learn it is. Exactly. And what, of course, it represents, which isn't, you know, much of a stretch. And I'm teasing this because we'll say it sort, uh, sort of towards the end, I think towards the middle. But um, but yeah, I think that lends a lot of weight to everything you're saying once we learn what that object is. All right, so let's move on uh, to our second section here. Um, so in Morocco, um, Abdullah, no, sorry. In Morocco, uh, Ahmed and Youssef come back from goat herding the goats a little bit earlier than usual. Their father arrives and says the road is closed as a terrorist has killed an American tourist. Uh, in Mexico, um, the uh, Santiago, who's played by Gael Garcia Bernal, and Amelia and the kids have no trouble crossing the border to go into Mexico. And they arrive as everyone is getting ready for the wedding. And the kids enjoy playing with the others there. Uh, Richard and the tour guide debate where to take Susan uh, back in Morocco. As the nearest hospital is four hours away. They decide to go to the tour guide's nearby village where a local uh, doctor can treat her. We later find out is actually a vet. Uh, the other passengers don't want to stay, but Richard pushes back. He calls his sister and has her call the U.S. Embassy to arrange for help. The physician finally arrives and stitches up Susan to prevent her from bleeding out. Back in Japan, Chieko goes to her dentist and makes an inappropriate pass at him. He's stunned and tells her to leave immediately. When she arrives home, she runs into two police officers who are looking for her father. Her friend arrives, and then they head out for the evening. So that's our that's where we'll stop uh, for for this section. Um, any initial thoughts on there? I see your head, your finger went right up, Harry. <laughs> what, what would you like? Yeah, to- <laughs> I actually wanted to jump in on on Richard because yeah, as yeah, you yeah. were talking about that, and it just again in the context of the conversation we're happening, we're having about how small the world is. That that's kind of stunning for Richard, a character who comes from you know a wealthy background, comes from this. We see his home. We don't know so much about his past, but we do see his home, and he has this beautiful home. I don't remember. I guess it's in California because it's close yeah. to the Mexican border. Do they say it's yeah. there? Uh, so yeah, so he has this. San Diego. Diego. I think they do yeah. say San Diego. Yeah. So he has this beautiful home in San Diego, and you know, like we we talk about how the world has become you know so small and so connected. But I think his story kind of shows how unprepared he is for a world that all of a sudden is so big. You know, you you can imagine if someone was shot somewhere in a wealthier city like San Diego, 
it wouldn't be such a question. You know, it's, it's a question of, should we go to the hospital? You know, that'll get them there in X minutes or, you know, X minutes, which one makes more sense. And all of a sudden he's paralyzed because the world is suddenly huge for him. You know, they, they can't figure out where to go. There's, you know, one hospital in a town four hours away, but it's out of the way and they don't know if they can go there with all the people and they don't know if they have time. So then they can go to this other clinic and it's like 30 minutes down this way, but they don't know if there's like an ambulance. And they ultimately decide to go to this, you know, small village that uh, the, the tour guide, the, the tour guide is from. But it's just you you kind of see how all of a sudden he becomes paralyzed with this. The world is is too big. It's it's like he's confronted with how almost disconnected he really is from from his surroundings for presumably the first time. I mean, I, like that's a feeling that I think we we if we've traveled, you know that feeling. Like there, there's, you know, what it's like to be way out of your element and to feel like, wow, if something bad happened right now, that would be really bad because I'm and, you know, maybe it's just if you're camping like there's, you know, can be isolated in lots of ways. But that feeling of that extra feeling of isolation where you're you know you won't be able to communicate effectively if something bad happens and sometimes something bad does happen and then you're you know it's it's especially scary like i could feel the fear in it in you know in him as he began to wake up to what the as you're saying to begin to realize what the the options were and how limited they were yeah i mean you could sort of see him physically kind of lose it when he's talking to I think someone came back and said, oh, the ambulance is not coming or something like that. And he's like pounding on the door and just like cursing nonstop and then just like pacing back and forth. You can see him kind of like unwind a little bit because he's he doesn't know what to do. Like he's totally lost and in a completely different place. The The person who's sort of his ally is a tour guide he had just met ostensibly not too, you know, not too long ago. Um, and he's having to rely on this person to be his his translator. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's very interesting. There's that one scene. I'm not sure if it's this section, but he's communicating with someone via this translator tour guide. And the translator is sort of editorializing what it is is being told to him. You know, he's saying, oh, you know, she's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. And really, the guy yeah. is saying something completely different. One thing that I also wanted to point out in this section that I, I just started thinking about, actually, is the way that the movie cast its children versus some of the adult characters. You know, I was thinking about the Mexican sequence when, you know, these two uh, when these two children are kind of brought into this town. And it's clearly something that's, you know, out of sorts for them. I mean, they didn't sign up for any of this. They didn't want to go with the Amelia to uh, to go to, to her uh, son's wedding or to her child's wedding. But they kind of instantly fall in line with the other children. Like they're running around, they're having yeah. fun with it. You know, th there is this one funny moment when Santiago kind of rips off a chicken head in front of them, which does horrify the children a little bit because I think that was culturally not, not something that they were used to seeing. But at the same time, like they are, you know, we don't get so much from them, but they clearly are the only ones that are able to connect with others on, in a way that kind of feels like unmediated. Like they are, they're fully able to, you know, cross the language barrier and just, you know, be friends with each other. And it just, it, I was trying to think about how that played in with uh, Chico in, in her storyline where she is close with her friends. I mean, they, she has peers, obviously, that, you know, they had, we talked about in that earlier section, there's some awkward encountering with, but her, the real tension from her storyline, we started to see it with this dentist scene, has become with her kind of trying to flirt upwards, that she's trying to be an adult and connect upwards. And that's the cause of her communication efforts. But when she kind of is with her peers and with her friends, there's, there's something a little bit more 
I think just easy about that. And I don't I don't know if I'm reading into something. I'm just trying to see like the way that these the it's almost like the children, you know, and, and this is a common trope that I think we've seen before, but like children aren't bound, you know, aren't divided by ideas and politics and anything like that. They kind of just simply know how to enjoy with the, like each other's company. And all of a sudden you start to reach upwards. You start to get to that adult age and maybe things get more complicated. And I don't know if that fits in with the Babel story. I don't know if that even fits in with the movie, but it's something that I, I kind of got the impression of in this, in this section. And I wanted to hear if anyone had thoughts on that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I want to say something that I think is that complements that that analysis, but doesn't but doesn't build on it much, which is that there's the children, and then there's like men and women, and mm -hmm. that's also a, a dynamic here. Like children are sort of free of the children are free of that; they're just in their zone. Although I guess they're not all free of that. As you know, the Moroccan kids are kind of learning to become men, and a men, lot yeah, of what, oh, yeah. I, what you yeah. see in this movie is just like you know like the problem is men you know like men feeling like like brad pitt's character when he gets stressed it's like it just starts cursing and shoving yeah, yeah, yeah. and then there's like yeah and you know it, there's violence involved in it and then i was just thinking like that's something that really dominant and then i was thinking about uh what's her name chico chieco's ca character yeah. um that character the way she she's obviously not well in all kinds of she's you know um she's struggling and she may be disturbed but like she then uses sexuality it provocatively as a way of like of of kind of commercing with the world or you know when when other communications fail right it seems like men are defaulting to violence and women are defaulting to the you know sexuality and it's like those those kinds of dynamics end up playing out when we don't have better ways of communicating with one another right and even like ahmed and, and yusuf's little i guess it's her sis their sister right. right and she's like starting out on that you know for context she ahmed and yusuf have i believe a sister who is uh you know there's a scene where she's like undressing in front of her brother and there's a whole yeah there's a whole like sub sub subplot about that but um yeah i mean i think it's it's very interesting what you're kind of pointing out it's yeah go ahead yeah, I, I really agree. And I think what you're articulating that there there is this adult language, you know, if there is if there does exist a common language in the movie, you know, a kind of Babel, you know, story of Babel, like the, everyone is speaking one language. It's exactly what you're saying. It's that adult language of, you know, sexuality, of violence. I mean, we were, you know, when I was talking about the children, you said, well, Ahmed and Yusuf, they, you know, obviously are have a little bit more challenges. But I, I think you could say that as soon as they're handed a gun, you know, that probably ages them that that it's the same way that uh, Chieko is kind of reaching upwards with their sexuality. I think that mm -hmm. puts them in this very violent adult kind of world. And I think that language of violence, aggression, you know, sexuality, you know, immorality, like in all those extent, like, I think that's the common language that's spoken across all of these stories. And um, mm -hmm. I want to think, I think it's just the Mexican story that, I mean, it, it does exist, right? It exists in, uh, we haven't got into it later. I think that's the one story where like, like you said, Daniel, like instead of the climax, you know, the gunshot maybe happening at the end, th this movie really puts it forward. I think the only story where you don't really see the big kind of dark twist happen until towards the end is in that Mexican story when mm. that whole border sequence plays out. Right. But when that plays out, it's that same kind of, you know, I mean, it's alcohol, which is obviously a very adult thing that plays a big role in it because, you know, he gets, you know, Santiago. Right? That's yeah. 
Exactly. He, because he's obviously drunk when he makes those, you know, in that big scene. And it's also provoked by aggression. But I really like the way that, you know, you kind of picked up on what I think I noticed about this age thing and just pointed to. I, I do think that there's this the, the common language here is just, you know, it's these adult themes of aggression, violence, all the above. And they're like out of their element, too. Like when Ahmed and Yusuf like have the gun. They are clumsy and don't quite know how to use it. And the same could be said about Chico when, like, she understands that, like, her body is something that she can use as a weapon, so to speak, to kind of, like, attract men. But she doesn't also know the rules of the game. She doesn't know. They're supposed know, to be children still. Exactly. Yeah. And she doesn't know what is appropriate and inappropriate behavior and things like that. So let's continue along in the story. So, yep. again, same structure. We're going to start, you know, Morocco, Mexico, American, and then Japanese. So... Ahmed and Yusuf hide the gun. A police investigator finds some shells on the hill and determines it must the, the shots that hit the bus must have been fired by a local. They swarm the house of the original man who sold the gun, and they beat him until he reveals that he sold the gun to his neighbor, Abdullah. The police find the boys, and they ask where Abdullah lives, and the youngest boy, he sends them in the wrong direction, and then they run home to tell their father that the police are looking for him. So meanwhile, in the Mexican story, the wedding is underway. The American kids are having a great time. Everyone's dancing and carrying on. And Amelia even rekindles her passions with an old flame. All good over there. Then uh, back on the American, the tourists are on the bus. Uh, the tourists on the bus are very hot and uncomfortable. One, I think, is even on the verge of passing out and they demand to leave. Meanwhile, the tour guide's grandmother gives Susan her opium, her opium pipe to help her relieve some of the pain. Um, then in Japan, the Japanese girls meet up with some friends and they drink and take some drugs before going to a club. Though Chieko can't hear the music, she enjoys the lights and people. And, you know, we see this scene of her just kind of walking through, taking it all in. She then spots her friend making out with a boy that she liked and goes home in frustration. When she arrives at her apartment, she asks the doorman to phone the young police officer and tells him that she needs to talk to him about something. I, I think by this point, like, it's clear what this, that we've been alluding to this. Sure, object, sure, go for it's it. It's really there from the start. I mean, I think at this point we're starting to see that the the central kind of connecting element is the is the gun and of course it's like it's such it's such an interesting so as as harry was saying earlier like that's the very embodiment of commodity and violence as like the unit that right. we the, that we all share no matter where we are it's like uh is it it's chekhov right who has, right. has like chekhov introduce gun, yeah. a gun like you got to use that gun. So of yeah, course exactly. the gun is, that's the first thing that happens in the movie. So in a way it's like we're hiding the object, but in a way it's there in the first scene. Right. And yeah. It's like a reverse Chekhov's gun. Cause like, I feel like with the Chekhov's gun, you kind of wait till they're like close to the end of the play for the gun to go off. This is like the first thing that happens. Yeah, that's sort right. of like our inciting. It's the reverse. Yeah. And I think this is, I think it actually is in this sequence. We didn't really cover it, but this is when the that gun, you know, we had known it connected three of the four stories. They just give the final reveal that it's the fourth. I think it's in this section. We see it when they're interrogating Hassan and they're, I think they show him a picture of him holding the gun and you see that, or he's not holding it yet, but it's actually being held by the person he's with, who we recognize to be Chieko's father. And we don't learn the details of how it exchanged hands until later on in the movie, but basically... You know, he was uh, Hassan was the tour guide for Chieko's father. And I think he just did such a good job that as a kind of as a tip, he, he handed him the gun and said, you know, this is for you to keep. And there's actually other reasons why he might have wanted to give up the gun that we kind of learn later on in the movie. We can get to that. But um, but yeah, but we just see that exchange. So that that kind of like neat little move of putting, you know, having the exchange happen in that fourth story 
unites them all together. And I think everything you were saying about it representing both what we're saying about violence, aggression, you know, all the worst traits of of humans, but also like commodities, like you were talking about in the beginning. I mean, it's a literal exchange. It's it's an exchange of arms, right? It's it's one of the biggest aspects of globalization that's kind of taken over the world is global war, you know, exists right. and obviously, you know, for a long time. Well, and here I have to jump in and say that these themes are also in, deeply embedded in the in the Tower of Babel story. Because like really what they're trying to do is to build a city, like it's industry, you know? It's about like together we can mobilize human power in order to create, you know, greater forces of of power and of wealth and of, um, and technological advance, but it's always tied up in, um, in power and in violence, and some of the um, some of the classic interpretations and elaborations on the Tower of Babel story imagine that it wasn't just like a happy project together, but that there was violence, and that when people would die in the process of building the tower, there's a famous famous midrash. I've heard that, this, that yeah. like when a brick would when would fall, or when like an in like a uh, a, a tool would fall. They would they would exclaim in great woe. But when a person would die, they wouldn't wouldn't care. Like people become just you know a, a means to the greater end. Even as you're mobilizing people to produce this greater end. And so there's like this idea that like uh, you know there's another famous story where like in the Tower of Babel there was like a sword on top pointing towards God like a salt mm-hmm. or or the people raced up the tower with hatchets in their hand like a lot of this imagery of violence and tools and you know the kind of it's like we associate these fears with the modernism like oh industry starts off and where is this going to lead to these are modern themes but actually it's really there in the first few chapters of the Torah they're already worried about what industry will do to to our humanity right because it's not like they get together as one people and they're like let's come up with an ethical society let's come up with ways to feed us all there's not you know like that's not the vision the vision is let's build a great big building you know so anyway i I feel like those those themes of technology technology industry and 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 the connections especially to violence are present certainly in the movie and are present in the in the original Babel story as well. Yeah. To kind of like pivot a little bit, I wanted to just talk about a few things from this section that stuck out to me. Oh, just one point of clarification. I think there was also the, um, they found like uh, goat poop. And I think that's kind of what gave the detective the clue that it was these shepherds. And so that's how they got to the house. I wanted to talk about the, the Mexican wedding because like that to me, and we're on the stretch train again, but... Like that to me felt like uh, a very fun, it could be a fun Jewish wedding, you know? There was lots of like, not quite like raising up on a chair, but I did, I think I saw some sort of like blanket situation where they were like lifting either the the groom up or some sort of member of the, and then he like stuck on to the wire. Um, seemed like a very fun wedding, a very long wedding, which, you know, some Jewish weddings could be very long. It just seemed like a great time. I definitely had that feeling also at when we were at the Mexican wedding. Like, yeah. so far, this is the best spirit. Yeah. This, these people are the happiest so yes. far that we've seen. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, like, that turns to disaster as well. Um, but, but yeah, there's, the, there's a moment there where you're like, oh, wait a minute. 
and you know, and I've I've I've, I've traveled. We, we live pretty close to Mexico here, and sure. I've traveled to Mexico a bunch of times, and I love going to Mexico. And, the, and the, there's something about our great global community and the ability to go and journey into the. In fact, I've been to Japan, and I, I've never been to Morocco, but I've you know been to the desert realms in the in the in the in the area. And there's something awesome about that. And you could feel that at the Mexican wedding, like how cool to be in a different culture and in a celebratory environment. And all of that is, that's the potential of our diverse humanity, you know, but disaster is like, is always just lurking there behind the curtain. A gun comes in and kind of ruins the party when Santiago takes out his pistol and like is trying to have a good time and he like shoots it. Everyone's like, can you just cut it out? Like. The kids are here. You're scared. Like the kids get scared yeah. and he kind of like ruins the mood a little bit. Yeah. I, I like what you were saying about that. Just having the potential for what good it could be, because we start a lot of these other stories. I mean, literally with a gunshot and it's kind right. of like, it's just, it's brutal and dark from that point forward. And there was something, you know, I, I, I kind of didn't let myself get too comfortable because I knew it was too good <laughs> to be true. Just right. the way this movie was going, you know, sure. especially because you knew, I mean, we, we can talk about this, but the whole decision to take the children with her, like I under like you can understand it in context, you know, it's your child's wedding and like you really want to go and there's really nothing she could have done with the children. And obviously, you know, the parents were admittedly very hard to reach out in Morocco and dealing with, you know, what we find out later was at the time they were dealing with the gunshot wound and trying to and trying to heal, uh, heal them themselves. But that decision to take them across the border, like there is a world where that could have worked out well. Totally. But I don't know, like that question of ma'am. You said you're in charge of them? Yes. You need the parents' letters of permission? I think that's a question she would have been asked, you know, even if they didn't look suspicious sure. or even if, you know, the driver wasn't drunk. So it was kind of something that, like, I was so excited and happy for them and the wedding scenes are amazing. Mazel but tov, I was just tov. like, <laughs> exactly. But that one always had the heaviest weight to me because I was like, this this cannot end well. Like, she right. she actively didn't communicate with, you know, the parents. She She's withholding information and right. kind of... That's a different form of communication we haven't seen, you know, go wrong. We've seen a lot of very harmful communication, but this is one where the act of not communicating something, of deciding, I will, I'm going to get away with this. Let me try to do something secretive. You know, even that, I mean, especially that, you know, would not pay off well. So, so now we we get to this, or, or you're alluding to this eventual like scene at the border where they're trying to get back in, and I have to say. That scene is, I think, I don't know exactly how I feel about it, because in some ways it was like the hackiest. I mean, the guy is like an, a brilliant director and like it's a very un, has a very unusual style and I enjoy following it along. But that, that, that scene of the bar was so classic. Like I've seen that scene in a movie a hundred times of like just the 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 jerk at the. You yeah, know, yeah. whether it's the cop, it's always a cop. And it was a cop License here and too, registration, right? please. And like, like that kind of, like, yeah. So like a part of me is like, oh, this is the way we're going to introduce danger into the Mexican story in the most obvious formulaic way. But on the other hand, that sort of was the point is like, yeah, that is what happens at the border. Mm -hmm. And it is what happens when police pull people over that they're, you know, that they're profiling. And it is happen like that is also a part of of this um global structure and i um and i think that i guess i i i was i guess it, i in the end i i felt like it was an example of two layers to the to the movie like one was just the crazy chaotic interconnectedness of hum, of of humanity and the complications that ensue 
but there was a political overlay. Sure. Like it does matter that some people have the power and the money and come from the wealthy countries. And it does matter that you're just going to run up into those things. And in the end, the Japanese and the, and the, um, and the Americans are doing fine okay. in the end. And in the end, the Mexicans and the Moroccans are not doing well. And that, that is part of the story also is that sure. it's like, sure. there's a, there's a geopolitical uh, landscape here and it's not a fair one. Right. right. They're, they're, those are the ones who are really the victims of all of this miscommunication, even though I would argue everyone is just as guilty of it, especially, you know, Brad Pitt's character, I think, often is just unrealistic and unfair in a way that I think, you know, in a, a in a movie that was representing a fair experience, he might have been just as, uh, you know, he might have been left just as poorly off as the rest of them, but ultimately kind of has what I would say is the happiest ending. Even within the interactions between people speaking the same languages very quickly there's always like a power dynamic very quickly established so we have mm. our spanish-speaking people and santiago has established himself as the dominant one and amelia is the passive one and yusuf and um uh yusuf and ahmed two brothers speaking the same language one is the more powerful one who can shoot the gun very well the other one kind of has to follow his lead even though he's the older brother and um you know chieko and her friends you know the ones who like get the guy and she's the one who doesn't get the guy and and things like that. I feel like uh and you know within and within Richard and Susan's story we have an Arabic speaking translator who can also speak English and then the rest of the people who are just the villagers who don't speak any English and so while it's you know explicitly demonstrated in the film I did sense that like there there exists that as well. So yeah. You know when you lay it out like that Daniel it's like I, I, I kept, you know, I, I remember that I kept feeling like, yeah, everybody's suffering here. Yeah. You know, everybody has pain in common. And yet nobody like the, the failure in communication is our failure to appreciate someone else's pain. You know, like we, right. in a way, right. that's the thing that we should all share. Wow. You're suffering. I suffer. We all suffer, but actually it becomes like the very thing that everybody else has no compassion is your pain because I've got my pain and that's right. what I care about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of a sad commentary on our, on our humanity, the ways in which we share so, so, so much, but we ultimately don't communicate well because we don't, we can't, we can't fully empathize. Right. Yeah. That that you know, the way you're describing that. I mean, my first thought was Richard and Amelia on the phone in the beginning, where she's like, "It's my son's wedding. I really want to go to that," and he just cannot see past his own predicament to get there. And then also Richard with the people on the bus, who it's you know, on one end it's like, how could they not be sympathetic to Richard? His wife was just shot. He's freaking out. He's in the middle of a village. How could they leave him? On the other end, like he makes no attempt to empathize with them. Oh yeah, it's not just that they're uncomfortable. I mean, someone on the bus, I think at some point we see literally passes out. You know, from she like has to the take medication stuff and, and all this other stuff. And, yeah. But yeah, everything you're saying, I think is, uh, it's it's really, it's the inability, it's everyone experiences pain. I mean, this is a really tormenting movie. This is, there's a lot of suffering in this movie kind of from the outset and everyone yeah. experiencing that. It's just, no one really understands each other's until, you know, we get a couple of cathartic scenes, I would say. And it's funny when I'm thinking about them, they're in the Japanese story and the American story for exactly the same reasons that I think you alluded to. It's that hug at the end of the Japanese story. It's, you know, that scene when, when they're, um, 
you know, in the scene when she's like, when Richard is helping Susan pee into the like pot, you know, kind of when they have that reconciliation moment, but you know, only some people in the character in the movie have the ability and the opportunity to, you know, find that connection again. But um, I think we've been alluding a lot to the fourth section. So Daniel, do you mind taking us through it so we can actually respond to some of these moments in context? Uh, so as the film continues, Abdullah and his two sons go and get the rifle and try to escape the police, but they find them and start shooting. There's a shootout that ensues. Uh, Ahmed, the older son, tries to run but is shot in the leg. The younger son, Yusuf, grabs the rifle and shoots one of the police in the shoulder. Um, the, the older son tries to run again and is shot. The youngest son then it runs down to the police and confesses to shooting the tour bus. You know, it's a very powerful scene. We'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, his surrender. Um, Amelia, the, uh, back in Mexico, Amelia asks a very visibly drunk Santiago to drive her and the kids home. I think it's well past midnight at this point. Uh, they are harassed at the U.S. border and told to pull in for a secondary inspection. Santiago, uh, you know, in a moment of haste, takes off in the car and is chased by a couple of border police cars. He drops the nanny, and, or he drops Amelia and the kids off in the desert and drives off in, as an effort to lose the police. Amelia and the children wake up in the desert in the morning, and Amelia, she sees a border patrol car pass and tries to, uh, you know, put the kids down and flag them down in vain. Uh, she then eventually wanders off again and finds a, a police car or a border patrol car, and uh, the border patrol agent, played by Michael Pena, arrests her. Uh, they return to the spot, but don't find the children. The police arrive and tell, uh, back in Morocco, uh, the police arrive and tell Richard that the ambulance was called but canceled by the American embassy, uh, who then want to send a helicopter. Uh, while he calls the embassy to figure out what's going on, the bus leaves without him. Richard and Susan share a moment and promise not to leave the kids again. The police officer, now back in Japan... The police officer arrives at Chieko's apartment and she shows him the balcony and explains that that is where she saw her mother jump to her death. He explained that he is not there to investigate the mother's death, but ask about a rifle that was registered to Chieko's father. He tried to leave, but Chieko asks him to wait. She re-enters the room completely naked and while he refuses, and when he refuses to touch her, she breaks down crying and he holds her. Well, I think we got to say now, now that we've mentioned this dramatic scene with the younger Moroccan kid, Yusuf, that mm -hmm. that that kid is like an uh, astounding performer. I mean, yeah, yeah, he is like the best thing in that movie, and for like his character and his acting, and just like the the depth of the and the complications in in that little boy, and he's also like he's also like in a different movie. This would be a, a movie about like the ultimate warrior being developed because he's like a sharpshooter and he's right. like, he's the totally. reason that it, he, he like every all of the nobody else knows how to shoot the gun, but he knows how to shoot the gun. It's like it's a crazy, but he's really remarkable, and I think he and um and Chieko are mm -hmm. su both such compelling. Those are like the the characters in the movie that are so complex and um, profound and interesting. And they're also the characters um, that actually create the drama. Mm -hmm. Like they're the ones that do the things that are the most shocking, um, though they're both actually in some ways very, they're both some of the most innocent or sympathetic or struggling or vulnerable characters, but the things they do in response are just sort of explosively like 
you know, I mean, just to just just to state one one obvious feature is like the the drama at the heart of this all is is just an accident. It's just that right. little kid being good at shooting the gun and randomly, you know, and here they start talking about terrorism. They start beating up families and everything. It's like the stakes are so high because we immediately um, bring it to this kind of global interconnectedness level. But it's actually just like a kid struggling to try and figure out how to be a a, a person, a man, you know? Right. Fun, quick fun fact. I know we usually do the context corner up top, but this is kind of, it came up. So fun fact. So Rinko Kikuchi, who plays um, Chieko and Amelia, were both nominated for Oscars in, in these performance in these performances. And then uh, the, the the guy who plays Yusuf uh, was actually cast by Inurito when he saw him playing soccer in a local town plaza. So, you know, an amazing sort of random find. And it turns out some of the best performances in the film. Yeah. Yeah, thought thought I would add that. Just you're right to point out that this is really a children focused movie. Like I didn't realize right. that in every plot line, you know, there's there's a big theme of the kids, and even in like, you know, in the later American plot lines, you know, there's there's connectedness to the kids. You know, the final one of the final scenes we get at least in that sequence is, you know, Richard on the phone talking to his children, and I think we we kind of overlooked this earlier, but there's a scene also when he's with the tour guide, and they're both talking about their own children and reflecting on that, and and there's something very. I mean, it feels in part with like the biblical theme, you know, like what we were talking about with brothers and children and kind of lineage, like more just generally. And I'm sure there's something specific in there too, but it just feels like this, this really is, you know, there, this is a world of flawed communication and and the hope is kind of in the children, you know, and, and like those hopeful moments we kind of get towards the end and really the last scene, which is Chieko, you know, and her father hugging each other. Not only is that this moment of connection at the end of this long movie instigated by, you know, one of the children, but it's also, I mean, she's the one who really initiates it. You know, it's not like he, her father, and we'll get to this in the last section that we're about to get up to, but, you know, he just kind of walks in the home and sees her kind of laid bare, very, I mean, literally naked, but also obviously emotionally vulnerable. And it's, you know, it's it's she who I think ends this movie with the spark of hope because it's, you know, in, in the most cliched way possible. It's it's the children are the future, right? They're they're the hope against this, you know, this entire movie's themes of just terrible communication from top to bottom. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, on some level, I mean, it, it, it's like that's what you want from human beings is for them to be able to say, oh, you have children, I have children. So we're the same. You're, 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 I know what it feels like to care about my children. So I understand you trying to care for your children. And that, and, and then every other example, like my humanity should help me understand your humanity. But instead, it's like, it, it, it's so, like, that, that's not, we're not able to make that leap. I I, keep, I I I continue to feel like the problem here that's being um that's at the that's being I don't know if it's deliberately pointed to but it's at the heart of this is that we just can't empathize. Like we right. it's not that we can't speak Japanese, it's that we can't get outside of ourselves and imagine like oh this Japanese person cares about their family, their kids, their security, their you know this Moroccan family like we just don't you know that's what's wrong with us you know it's um that's what we can't figure out is how to see each other you know as one global family we can't do that yeah 
I think yeah. it's interesting. One one sort of moment exchange between uh, Brad Pitt's character uh, Richard and, and the translator when they're. I think it's when he's exchanging photos of his two kids and they're just discussing, oh, you have kids? Oh, yeah, I have two and they're here. And like it's sort of alluded to and I think that uh, Susan and Richard have lost a child recently. They're talking about it. Yes. And so they're engaging and he said, oh, how many kids do you have? I have two. And I, how many of you kids do you have? I have five. And then instantly, rather than say, oh, like that's great for you, good for you, Mazel Tov, like he's like, you should have more kids. And that, I, <laughs> I feel like, you know, that's kind of like a it's like a it's a tough interaction because i think he means well and like the the heart is there but i think because of the language you know you're speaking the same language but there's still a little bit of miscommunication there as far as like that's not really an okay thing to say and like it probably hurts Brad Pitt's character even more knowing that he has just lost that a child lost and, a child. um but yeah. it's also not completely um unfamiliar to someone who has you know kids of their own and like I've heard that before from people. Um, so there's the Jewish tie-in right there. <laughs> and you know, Brad, Brad Pitt's up, character, um, you know, sobs at, towards the end of the movie when right. he finally speaks to his son. And he's so... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so relieved by that. And so, like, he feels suddenly the humanity. And I think you 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 start to, to see that, you know, we, we care so much about those we love. Like mm -hmm. we we would do anything for them. We would sacrifice anything for them. We we hold them as as precious and sacred. But like that that care can only go so far. We only have that much emotional mm -hmm. reserve, you know, available for our very own family. And at a certain point, you can't care about everyone. And it's just a like that's such there's not that's not just like a failure of ours. It's a true dilemma. You can't care sure. about everyone. And so what, so do you, what do you do with that? It's it's not just a true dilemma. I mean, it's the I was going to try to tie this back to the Mexican story, because that is the dilemma with Amelia, where she's trying to hold place in her heart for both of her, you know, her children uh, that yeah, she takes yeah. care of. But also like this was is it her daughter, her son, her actual son's son. Wedding? Yeah, her son's wedding. It was, yeah. So it's her son's wedding. And. I mean, like you're talking about that scene with Brad Pitt crying at the end, you know, finally getting to connect with his children. I mean, the most heartbreaking scene is at the end with Amelia, where she's being told that she's being deported. And she's like, but I raised these children. I've been there since they were born. Like I have been there the entire time. And right. we do get, again, th there's this moment at the end that I was as sad as I was for her. It was very nice to see her seeing her son again, who obviously yeah. we had seen from the wedding. And he's the one who picks her up from the border and they get this kind of connection. And, you know, she has that family, but it actually, I think, ties into what you were saying about as much as you, you hold place in your heart to connect to other people, like the only connections we see in the entire movie, and this is across all of them that really hold strong are the familial ones, right? Like even, right. you know, in the in the Japan one, when Chieko struggles to connect with anyone else, it's her father who she's able to connect to, you know, Brad Pitt yeah. and his children. And then of course, you know what I was saying with Amelia and then I think the Moroccan family themselves, you know, are all ultimately very close together, even though it results in, you know, one of them dying in a very tragic fashion. But, you know, with I think we've already covered everything that happens at the end of the movie. But just to go through the formal exercise, maybe I'll just take us through the actual Close it out here. And, and read through what we have. But all this should be familiar at this point. But sure. going through all four plot lines and just wrapping them up. In the final scene in the Moroccan section, Yusuf reminisces about playing with his brother Ahmed as we see the lifeless body of Ahmed who's been shot kind of carried away. We see, you know, a flashback of them earlier playing around in the wind. Um, 
in the Mexican story, an immigration officer, he berates uh, Amelia and says that she's going to be deported. Richard, he tells her that Richard has been notified back in Morocco. And although he's angry with what happened, he's not going to press charges. And we finally end her section when she's picked up by her son at the border. Um, Back with the Americans, the helicopter finally arrives to pick up Susan. Richard tries to give the tour guide some money, but he refuses. Susan is then taken to a hospital and operated on while under the watch of, you know, all these news cameras that have been covering this story. Um, Richard calls home and he breaks down crying while hearing about his son's first day at school or a son's day at school. Uh, finally, in the Japan section, Chieko's father encounters the police officer who's leaving the building. The officer asks him if he owned a rifle that he gave to a Moroccan hunting guide, and he confirms that this is the case. The officer then tells him that he spoke to his daughter and is sorry to hear about his wife jumping off the balcony and that he's going to close the case of you know, his, his, his late wife's murder, knowing now that it's a suicide. But the father, kind of confused, responds that you know she shot herself in the head and that his daughter was the first person to find her. Um, Chieko's father finally arrives home and he sees that the balcony door is open, but he doesn't know where the daughter is. And finally, he finds her standing where, you know, at that spot on the balcony, um, completely naked. And Chieko takes him by the hand and breaks down crying. And they have this one final hug at the end. And then that big pan out to the city, like we mentioned at the top. And that's where the movie wraps up. Seeing all these sort of, I think it's like, I think we're like post climax, right? Because climax is the the section before, and now this is like the like come the down, down or something from or come from down. yeah or yeah. I think it's kind of like everything, kind of like like it's a big breath in, and now this is the breath out, and like everything. Ooh, okay. So like Amelia is back in Mexico, and you know the the Yusuf's brother Ahmed has died, and um, Susan is is in good shape. I think I think at this point, Chieko's oh no, the detective goes to a ramen bar. And he sits right. down and he has some sort of nice drink. I wasn't sure what it was. Maybe it's sort of like Shochu. a rice. What? What? So what is that? What kind of, is it it's like, like a, a? Yeah, it's like a Japanese alcoholic beverage. Got it. Um, but he gets a rice. second. He gets a second shot. So like, I think he's you know kind of had a tough day. But like on the screen here, we see Susan coming out of the hospital. Um, you know, like we said, the film kind of plays with time in weird ways. So um, I think you know Susan is is doing okay. And uh, Chieko's with her father. So, you know, it kind of wraps up nicely, but they've all been through a lot. So, Whew, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't wrap up nicely for everyone, as we've said a number of yes. times. And no, yeah, my, no. I'm saying, saying like the stories kind of like tie up. Yeah, yeah, right, for it was, sure. It's a denouement for sure. Yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but one of <laughs> my favorite happy, lines yeah. in, the, in the movie, I had two lines that I thought were like particularly stand out. And one of them is towards the end when like the reporter is like, you know, the... Kate Blanchett's character comes out of the hospital, Susan, and the the, re, the Japanese reporter is like, finally a happy ending for the Americans, you know, yeah. like, which yeah. is like right. because it's I a global controversy, like contra, you know, or oh story, right, right, basically. right, right. But actually, like, isn't that the way? Like, everybody's in chaos, but a happy ending for the Americans. So that totally. was like certainly like very um, on the nose. And then the other line that I just loved, the one that really like struck me in the movie, is when. Amelia, when she's trying to save these two kids and find someone to come help them, and she's got she's got to go uh, leave them for a while, which they're shocked by because it's just getting worse and worse. And thank God, eventually she finds someone. But as she goes to leave, the young boy Mike is sort of horrified that she's going to leave them, and he's like, <laughs> "Right, you're bad." Oh. And she yeah. goes. No, sweetie. No, no, I'm not bad. 
I just think so stupid. And like that felt to me like that's like that's deep. And that's like in some ways the core of the movie. Like we're not wicked, but we're so stupid, you know? Mm. And and I think that that's actually that's actually somewhere in the Tower of Babel story as well. It's like I I think you know, tradition has, and and it's easy to see the builders of the Tower of Babel as wicked. Like they were, all the rabbinic stories are like, they were, again, they were at war with God. But actually it sort of feels like they're just, they're just stupid, they're foolhardy. And they think they can make everything work out and they think they can build a tower to the heavens, but actually like they, you know, they're just taking a little bit too much for themselves. And even Amelia, who's such a sympathetic character, but it was dumb of her to take those kids across the board. Like, Absolutely. And everybody's just trying yeah. to take a little bit too much for themselves. And in the end, it's like, they're not bad people, but we're all so stupid. Well, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Rabbi David Kasher to rate the film Babel on a scale of one to five stars of David in terms of content, themes, and cast and crew. I will get us started with the cast and crew stuff. Um, as far as I could tell, there are no obvious Jewish characters, uh, Jewish actors, directors, things like that. That being said, I haven't, I'll be honest, I have not done my uh, thorough research that I usually do. But I don't know. Does everyone feel comfortable saying that maybe there's not a lot of Jewish people in this movie? I don't know. I'm looking. I'm scrolling. I don't see anything. Brad, Brad, I mean, Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett are definitely not Amer an American Jewish couple. You know? Right, right. Yeah, no, for sure. That's for sure. And Inuritu, as far as I could tell, uh, not Jewish. So uh, that brings us to our themes and our content. Um, how do you feel about the, how does everyone feel about the content of the film being Jewish and then the themes being Jewish? Well, this movie was sort of like, I mean, it's funny because it's like, you know, it's both zero and five because it's like, it has nothing to do with Judaism or the Jewish people or it doesn't implicate us in any way. And then it has this title that's just, it frames the whole story now in this ancient Jewish tale. So, you know, like our ability to talk about it through the through the through the Tower of Babel story is like there's clearly something Jewish about about that that through line, but it's also not Jewish at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way you just put that as, you know, it's both one and five is perfectly said because you know, in some ways, like this movie could not be mistaken for a Jewish film if you watched it. But I think if you watch it after reading the title, I think it demands you view it with at least a biblical lens. And, you know, the, as a biblical story, like, I, we, I I think we can claim this as Jewish. Of course, this, this exists in the Torah. But, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily feature Jewish people. I mean, it's it's one of the most universal stories in the Torah because it's supposed to represent an A of people that existed before, you know, formal children of Avraham, you know, children of, you know, Jewish people. But also it, it's about the entire world. So it's this Jewish frame almost to tell quite possibly the most universal of stories. And that's why this movie itself, I think, is that same sort of universal story. Yeah, you just said, Harry, exactly what I was thinking. And it is important that the Tower of Babel is in some ways, as I said, it's like the last universal story before we get to Abraham and the particular Jewish story. But it is, that seems very significant. The Torah, our sacred text, 
is for for the first 11 chapters is concerned just with humanity and that's clearly one of the torah's um concerns we are all the descendants of 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 adam of, of adam and eve and that's part of what's important about the torah the the tower of babel story because it's like we all descended from the same people and yes we're going to follow the jewish story just like we might follow the japanese story or the moroccan story or the mexican story or the american story but like there's some deep sense that the Torah for sure has and that this movie is also playing with that like we're all connected. We are all human beings. Like we are we are related to one another even as we are, you know, so mired in our own very different particular stories. Yeah, it's um it's interesting because like I wonder would the film work if it was like called something different and like would would we even th- read into it this whole babble tale if it was called some sort of like birdman-esque title which is like you know for those not familiar with the the name of birdman it's some sort of, it's like birdman colon yada yada yeah, yada, yada. of ignorance that's the one yeah so like if it was called something super pretentious like that would we read into it this whole and place upon it this frame of the Babel story and things like that, would it still work? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would say no, but, but right. I would also say, but that's a, but that's a choice. That's a device. Like, you know, Herman Absolutely. Melville does that in, in his novels. Like there's, there's a great power to just like signaling a biblical reference. Mm-hmm. And that's, and as Jews, you know, who, uh, who, you know, have this tradition of reading through these stories again and again, these references are kind of, they're references to our core stories and there's something we have therefore a kind of deep access to whenever I see, I don't know, you know, Herman Melville making an allude, call me Ahab. So like I, Ahab, oh, Ahab, like those are, that's in my Tanakh. Like those are my stories and I have a deep relationship to them. So I can think like, oh, like, how do I I look at this story? I look at this story through the lens of the Tower of Babel. And Inurito is is asking me to do that. And then as a Jew, I'm like, oh, cool. Well, I can do that, you know, in the Hebrew and with the commentators and, you know, with my experience of this story, having read it again and again, year after year. Yeah. I mean, so I think for me, where I'm coming is like the the content is nothing like explicitly Jewish. So I'm going to dig into the themes like we talked about throughout the the episode, you know, this whole notion of communication and like how it maps onto the story of Babel. Um, I think, you know, it's all there. We've talked about it uh, extensively. So I feel comfortable giving my my score. Um, I'm probably going to go like a two and a half, you know, because uh, I don't know if that's too high, too low. It's kind of right, like kind of what you were saying, David, like, you know, it's not a one, it's not a five. It's like, I feel like, you know, looking through that lens, hearing your your awesome retelling at the beginning kind of context setting, setting the table, and that's the frame through which people can view the film. I feel like, uh, you know, maybe two, two, two and a half. I don't know. Now I'm like second guessing myself. I don't like 2. going 2. first. 2.25? 2.25? <laughs> sure. Whatever. Yeah. How about yourself, uh, uh, Rabbi David? Rabbi what's, the, what's the ranking now? Uh, just one to five. Like where? Overall, where, how Jewish is this? How Jewish? Just taking how Jewish is the all story. the things. Yeah. Oh, um, it's arbitrary. This is like a nonsense thing that we do at the end of the podcast. It's right. just, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, why don't I just say five? Because, <laughs> you know, obviously it's not a, you know, it's not in so many ways. And yet, like, I want to, 
I want to affirm the power of being in communication with the Torah, with the Hebrew, with the Tanakh, with the Hebrew Bible. Like I, um, you know, I think we use the word Torah in in our tradition. Sometimes we say the Torah and we're talking about the actual book. And sometimes we just say Torah. Like it's just a thing. It's a phenomenon. It's a way of studying. And what I think that way of studying means is, you know, well, we're we're doing all kinds of new things, but it's in an ongoing conversation with that first story. Like that's, right. you know, the Talmud is doing all kinds of new things, but it is, it's in dialogue with that story. And I think that, that this movie is clearly in dialogue with that story. And in a sense, in, in that in that sense anyway, this movie is Torah. Five stars for is that right? Did I read you right? Is that you yeah, said five? Why not? I'll give it okay. five. Yeah. I love like it. Easy. I love you the know, boldness. No, there's no cost here. I'm happy right. to give it five stars. Generous so tipper. This, this I appreciate be, that. This will forever be on the record, though. <laughs> I, will, I will say the official record. Um, that that was probably the most shocking five since The Exorcist, I would say, Daniel. If you agree, oh, we, we heard yeah, another yeah, surprising. So. But but I, I like that take. You know, I like that, like, you know, as a movie that's complex, layered, and pushes forward a lot of these themes of universal, you know, come communion com, you know uh companionship I, I i think and communications all the all the c's i think this is very effective and certainly exemplifies a lot of our values and that that's kind of what i'm also leaning into a little bit is just how much of that you know those messages exist i think the way that the movie handles them other than using the frame of babel it's it's much more universal it's much more aimed you know and targeted and you know by and, and for a, a very universal audience, you know, it's really commenting on this kind of state of interconnectedness across the world. And obviously, as Jews, we're, we're part of that. But that's the, the, the scope of this movie just goes so far beyond that. So I think it's hard for me to look at this and, and think of it as, you know, a Jewish movie that, you know, in my context, either is portraying or telling something or, or showing something about the Jewish experience in a way that that stands out from what could be a more universal experience. All that being said, you know, I was thinking about how I wanted to do the numbers. I think these, this is probably the widest range of uh, of scores that we've given it. But I'm going to give it a star up top just for, you know, Babel and invoking that biblical theme. Because that, like like you said, uh, David, like that, that was a choice and that didn't have to be done. But like you can't view the movie without it. I mean, that is the choice. That is the frame. And this conversation that we just had for the last hour went a certain way because we knew to look at it in that way and because we knew right. to pull it in and just mm -hmm. invoking that you know, is, is, was very powerful and effective and really bring some Jewishness into there. And then I'm going to throw in another half star just because as much as these messages, I'm calling them, you know, universal, like they apply to Jews as well. And, you know, you know, between a, a fellow and, you know, and his, uh, a person and his fellow and their fellow, like that, that kind of theme of how we're supposed to talk and communicate with each other. I mean, there are real Torah values in the, in there the same way that there are, you know, values and other systems of belief, obviously for, for those. So I'm going to end up with about one and a half stars, I think on okay. the lower end of everyone, right. because this isn't, you know, if someone said, I really want to watch a Jewish movie, can you point me to one? Wouldn't be the first that I chose. Sure. But, uh, but I really, really did enjoy talking about the Jewishness of this movie. And I think we uncovered a lot of it that certainly existed. Totally. I feel like this is probably one of the most wide spanning, like ratings differences. Like we go from yeah. one star, one and a half star to five stars, which is great. Well, like I said, ultimately, this how Jewish is this movie? It's like zero and five, you know? Right, it just sure. I think you're totally right about that. Totally, 100%. I think you were right about that. Rabbi David Kasher, thank you so much for being on Jews on Film with us. Um, we really, uh, you know, 
are, are uh, honored that you are our first rabbi on the podcast. We've My done pleasure. like 39 episodes now and, you know, we're breaking a lot of, we're having a lot of firsts, you know, uh, you know, in this uh, 2023 year. But uh, I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about your book, Parshanut, 54 Journeys into the World of Torah Commentary. Yeah, so uh, thanks so much for uh, mentioning it. Uh, and as I said, it was a good connection because I actually am in this book and I'm, I know there's a little nod to the to the movie Babel. But um, yeah, no, it's it's just a book about the stuff that I love the most and that I think, it, you know, I, I would I, I think everybody should check out because I think it's just some of the best stuff that Judaism has to offer, which is very specifically um, the tradition of commentary on the Torah. The tradition, I should say, the tradition of reading one section of the Torah every week, um, every Shabbat throughout the year, and we call that the Parsha, the, the part, the portion of the Torah, and um, just cycling through this, this book again and again and again and again, so that like, you know, we're going to end up reading the Tower of Babel store every year at around the same time of the year, like it gets ingrained into our consciousness in a way. And then the, once that tradition begins, then there's this idea that like, okay, well, we're all talking about these stories. Let's record our interpretations of these, of these stories, our explanations of these stories. And that forms this whole literature um, called Parshanut. We sometimes refer to it as Parshanut or um, Torah commentary. Um, and I'm using the term uh, Parshanut kind of widely to refer to all the way back to the days of the Talmud and the Midrash, and then sweeping through the Middle Ages where the the the, the commentaries really kind of took off and some of the famous names like Rashi um, uh, enter the, the scene and then on down through the 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 years and into the common the 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 in I was I don't know why I'm just saying the common era, <laughs> but into the present era. Um and uh and yeah, it's just it's just an incredible um tradition. I like the stuff. I like the this book is mostly about just here's some cool stuff I found in the in the in the libraries of Torah commentary and trying to expose people to the to how that works. But I also just like what it represents, which is that, you know, these stories are so, so captivating. They have so captured our imagination as a people and then human imagination, you know, like then the Christian imagination and the Muslim imagination and the whole world's imagination. You know, I mean, like, uh, I don't know if Inyaritu, I don't know what his religion is, but like, assume he's Catholic if he's Mexican and like of course he has the Tower of Babel story in his tradition like it's it, it, this idea that there's something about these stories that just like some sort of b b burn their way into our into our consciousness I I think it's a testament to to the Torah to just sort of like the the power of the Torah like this we've centered our whole kind of um religion and peoplehood around these stories and there's a reason they're not like it's not arbitrary there's something powerful about these stories and so this book is a little bit just of a, a celebration of that a celebration of these stories and a celebration of the folks who have been commenting on interpreting celebrating this these stories throughout the ages so there's one essay for every one of the the 54 some we squeeze 54 into a year any one of the every one of the 54 parshot and they always just in you know, looking at one idea, one theme, um, and and seeing what the 
the whole tradition of commentary has had to say about it. And I, you know, I guess I'll just end by saying, like I said, that the the second chapter in this book is a Tower of Babel story. And there's some nice. there's some shocking stuff in it. So, uh, yeah, like Parshanut, you can find it on Amazon or if you don't like Amazon, go to um, Quid Pro Books, which is my publisher. And there's lots of other ways to buy it. But I appreciate you mentioning it. And it's uh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of just the labor of love. Awesome. And uh, do you do social media? Is there a place where people can like find some of your work or find yeah, you online? Like, uh, it, I have like a, a Rabbi David Kasher page on Facebook and that's where I'm posting all my classes and all my, um, you know, links to, you know, stuff that I'm doing. Um, and then I, you know, we have a, a podcast uh, at Icar where I, I do Parsha stuff and it's called Best Book Ever best book ever and it's you can find it on itunes and spotify and uh yeah awesome cool well uh thanks for for being uh, here on the podcast and thanks you to everyone for listening to jews on film you can find us on all the social media platforms uh we're on instagram on facebook on twitter on tiktok um all the places but make sure uh you know if anyone has any feedback for us or they have a movie they want us to check out you can email us at jews on at gmail.com but uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening and have a good one. Right on. Bye, everyone. Bye bye. Thanks for having me. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>